Welcome to the Calgary Sessions. I'm your host, Jeff Humphreys. This is episode number two zero, number 20. Today's guest, him and I go back a long ways. Um, so this will be a fun one. He, uh, his, perspective, his perspective will be very interesting. His sport background is also very interesting. So uh, I'll, I'll stop rambling. I'll let him introduce himself and what he does. Hi, uh, my name's Steve uh, Wheatcroft, and I'm currently the uh, CEO of Urban Life Solutions. Uh, people around Calgary are probably Sarah Trucks, so they have ULS on the sides, and yep. uh, we just went on uh, a little bit of adventure with private equity, so things are changing with our company. Quickly. Yeah, yeah, really quickly. So ULS is, is that classic uh, landscape truck you've seen around Calgary for how many years? Oh, we started in, uh, original business plan actually was written in 1988 at uh, the University of Calgary, I was taking business there, and uh, in 1989, I got sick of jumping out of helicopters, planting trees, and thought I'd uh, stick around Calgary and try out the business uh, plan with a few of my friends. And that was what we did. We launched, uh, it was originally called University Lawn Services, actually. So that. that was the, yeah, that was the original name of the company. And we kind of fashioned it. We were going to be the next college pro painters, but we were going to do it with grass instead of paintbrushes. So hmm. we were really excited and we had this great idea. And so we launched it in 1989. Hmm. Yeah. Wild. Yeah. That was a good year. Flames won the cup. That's right. Flames on the cup. My uh, first child was born and uh, launched ULS. Oh, it so it's crazy. a real year. Yeah, I was like 23. <laughs> I'm like in university, I had a year to go. I was trying to cut grass. I had a kid. I was trying to play. I was playing hockey at UFC. I had a part-time job. And then I'd all, I always remember being in Skirfield Hall, falling asleep in the cubicles. And I'd usually wake up in a, in a pile of slobber. And uh, my, I had a shirt that I'd wear to class in front of the profs because it pissed them off. And it said, C's get degrees. Because I just wanted to get out of there. I didn't care. Like, it was just a blur. It was a blur, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, this is going to be a fun conversation because I don't, you know, we met later in life, obviously. Yeah. And you were kind of already on this path. But it'll be fun to go back. I want you to go back in your childhood, sport career, education, oh, wow. family, wherever you want to go. Go to a point where, you, you know, the memories are still fairly intact and... Yeah, I just want to hear what, you know, what kind of decisions you were making, what inspired you back then, whether it was all athletics, it doesn't sound like it was school. So no, yeah. no, no. go back to even where you, you know, where you grew up and how you grew up. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny because I was born in Edmonton. Uh, so I always kind of feel like I escaped, uh, you know, and I don't, maybe it's not a good analogy with what's going on in the world today, but I escaped the concentration camp. I got out of Edmonton when I was three months old. Oh, and, so early. Uh, yeah, early. And uh, we went to... Uh, to Southern Ontario when my brother was born there. And then we moved back and, you know, was really uh, a resident of Calgary from the time I was three years old onward. But fast forward, went to, went to high school at Queenie. Uh, you know, I guess then she gets all the recognition of being the big Queenie guy, but I always, there's a sports wall of hall of fame wall there. <laughs> yeah. I'm on it. So. <laughs> I don't you? think Nenshi's on there. He doesn't seem like an athlete to me, but anyway, what did you, what did you play in high school? Everything? Uh, well, you know, I was playing high-level hockey, so it really restricted us. But a uh, really funny story was, you know, all we had a lot of good hockey players some, for some reason from Queenie and uh, guys that were playing for the Calgary Wranglers, playing junior all over. Uh, and we were all at que Queenie going to school. So, like, our sports teams were horrible. So our football team had lost 71 straight games. No way. And all these good athletes were playing hockey. Couldn't do any of the school sports, you know, playing triple-A midget and all that. But in the uh, later years of high school, we had a real cool coach there, Dan Richmond. He was a former, played for the Toronto Argonauts. And he, and he came to me and said, Steve, can you get all the hockey guys to play rugby? Like, like we could actually be a good, uh, uh, we could be a good team if we get all these guys out. So I, 
I was like, nah, you know, hockey's over in April and I don't want to play rugby. I just want to do nothing, right? And mm-hmm. try to get caught up on school because I was usually struggling to get by. Um, so anyway, uh, but we did. We got everybody together to play rugby and it was it was hilarious. So very first game, I'll never forget it. So we have to play St. Francis. And the year before, they'd beat us 80 to nothing in rugby. No so I'm lining up. I look over there and I'm like, oh my God, what's going on? Like these guys are way too big. And I remember it started off, and probably within the first three minutes, some guy threw an uppercut under the under the the uh, ruck and hit one of our guys. So, and I was playing standoff, and I stepped up and I punched this guy right in the front of the head as hard as I could, knocked him out cold. And uh, anyway, we went, we won the game ten one. No it was just a grinded out. And these guys from St. Francis were choked, and I don't know if any of them remember back then because I've talked to a few guys about that, and uh, it was funny because that was the. We were the first time we believed we could actually win. And this coach came up to me and says, you can't do this. You can't play with pay like this. But he was the best coach I ever had <laughs> of any sport. He pulled me and he goes, but I love you. So just keep doing it. What, what, he knew what? it was wrong, but he's like, this is the only way we're going to win. And it was funny because we won the city championship that year. First time Queenie, it was in 1983. No and it was way. the first time they'd won a city championship. And I think in like 20 years at any sport. And, uh, but it was, it was one of my, you know, I, I played a lot of hockey, but I always remember back to that team about seeing the best guys, you know, in their one specific area of expertise, excelling and just pulling together. And it was a, it was the epitome of what a team was about. Why was that coach so good? What was about him that just kind of resonates with you? Cause you've had a lot of coaches. I've had a lot of coaches, but you know, he, it it was like all of us didn't know what we were doing. Mm. So he wasn't a rugby guy. He was a football guy. And then Mm. we had all these hockey players. Uh-huh. And then we had kind of the guys that were so used to getting their butts kicked, but it decided to, you know, football guys or guys that played volleyball said, no, I'm going to, we're going to do this. We're going to try to, we're going to be on this rugby team. So it's yeah. such a mismatch. Mm-hmm. But I think it was just his, his ability to just to say, we're only going to win if we're just nut bars. And he just let us run amok. And Which, that's up your alley. Yeah, it's up my alley. <laughs> and, you know, today that would not be put up with. It mm-hmm. would just be like, there's no way you can't do this. Yeah, like. Yeah. You're done. You're off the team. Yeah. But this guy, he he kind of, he was the perfect at needling that little thing in every mm-hmm. guy, right? We had one guy that could kick the ball farther than I've ever seen in my life. Uh, he's actually a good buddy of mine, a high-end CFO here in Calgary. But this guy could kick the ball. So he's like, every time you get it, just kick it down because then they got to bring it all. So we played this rugby, but it was like no other rugby team. It was just like some... I don't even know if it was rugby. It was it was a mix of of hockey and and Aussie rules and and he just kind of like you know masterminded this incredible uh, group of guys that just wanted to win mm-hmm. and uh, it was just it was unbelievable. Cool. Yeah, it was fun. So and then school is not you're just there. Are you like are well, you, are you know, you, are you accomplishing some things, or are you kind of just sliding by? My mom and dad were, were really neat people, and when I was 16 and my brother was 14, they had started up a business and they had to go to Toronto to run it. So they sat us down, and you, you, I mean, parents nowadays would think this is crazy. I'm 16, my brother's 14. They're like, look, this is gonna be good for the family. We got to go away to Toronto. You guys can stay in the house. You look after yourselves. Here's your money. My mom was a home ec teacher, so we learned how to cook, clean you know, make our beds. Like I was mm-hmm. like, I mean, I could fix everybody's hockey equipment with dental floss. I had a super awesome backstitch. And, uh, so they left us and they, they went off to Toronto. So here's me and my brother. What'd they start? What'd they start? when they went it, it was like a, it was kind of like a stage show where they put on these fashion shows and they sold these products. And it actually turned out to be unbelievable to watch my mom and dad in this entrepreneurial setting, make all this money. 
so, you know, here's me and my brother, you know, kind of just living on our own. And uh, so we had this kind of real hands off experience. And my mom and dad loved us. I mean, nowadays, I just, I'm so thankful for them doing that because mm-hmm. here I was like 16. We had our, so we would ship all the products from our garage. So we had our own little business. My dad used it for a tax write off. So he would pay us. So at 16 and 14, like, my mom and dad didn't pay for nothing. Like my mom's like, you got to buy tooth- your own toothpaste, your own toothbrushes, no go shopping for our own clothes, buy our own hockey equipment. So, you know, it was such a, a different upbringing. Well, and like, difference probably an understatement though. Well, nowadays there, I, there's, I tell people this and they just think it's a, it's crazy. Yeah. Right. But it was so good to build, you know, uh, skills. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think nowadays, you know, you, you see that, you know, it's some terms, helicopter parent, whatever, this over-parenting. Yep. And, and they don't let their kids fail. Mm-hmm. Well, here's me and Jimmy just like living in town on our own, doing whatever. And uh, in hindsight, we were pretty good. I mean, there's obviously some backstories where we kind of went over the line. But yep. the one thing my mom and dad always said is, you know, I, my family was all entrepreneurial. And, and uh, the theory in my family is don't go to university. It's a waste of time to start a business. My grandma and grandpa had their own business. All my uncles had their own business. My mom and dad. But my dad had, was it, had an engineering degree from U of A, mm-hmm. and my mom had a, you know, a, a teacher's degree from the University of Alberta. So they were always like, you know, everyone in the family says university's a waste of time. Th- that was a discussion? That was a discussion. Like, that was like an open conversation that they were... Yeah, open conversations. So my mom and dad said, but what we would like to see you do is go to university, and then you can make your own decision whether it was useless. Mm. So, uh, so my dad's tactic on this kind of hands-free parenting was and same with my mom was here's the rules they were pretty simple like no drugs you know you can only have one pop a week don't get arrested <laughs> <You know? laughs> my mom was just don't drink pop you know it's gonna like wreck your life um and then and then my dad was like and my dad you know engineer right so he got right to the heart of it here's here's the my dad's big rule is you don't have a 70 percent averages average your hockey skates are gone hmm. and that in itself basically you know, made my, me and my brother, you know, competent students because yep. we did whatever we could to get over 70. And that's why in university, you know, the C's get degrees, but mm-hmm. you know, we are probably like that 75 to 80. We weren't knocking the, you know, the socks off. But pretty good for you know, well, that environment by yourself and figuring all these things yeah, out. Yeah. And, uh, so, you know, we had that and, and I always, I always enjoyed school, but for me, it was like a means to an end. Like, how do I get done school? So I can go to hockey practice or, how can I get done school so I can go back to, we had a, a shop above our garage where we shipped out all this materials mm-hmm. mom and dad were selling. So yep. how do I get back to business and mm-hmm. how do I get to hockey practice? Mm-hmm. And uh, I got to go to school, right? You yeah. know, I got to do this first so I can do everything yeah. else. And I, I got to get a 70. <laughs> <laughs> so when they, did they, this business they started, was it random or did they have it in Calgary and they needed to expand out East? No, my own dad got offered the rights for all of Canada. So they took those on and then it just, my dad, I remember that saying, we're going to be so rich over this. I'm like, oh, whatever. Like to me, it just seemed like weird. Like random? It was like five steps away from snake oil salesman. But, you know, um, 
in hindsight, just it just exploded. And then, you know, they had the rights for all of Canada, so they just wanted to, like, take advantage of the market and try to build it out as quick as they could. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, and it was good. And it was funny because in the later years, my mom and dad ended up getting divorced, and then my mom still had the rights, and so she needed to make some money. So my mom reincarnated the business because we had, like, two years left on the licensing. And I did actually a, a full year where I went on the road with my mom and no helped way. her. Yeah, because she, you know, I... I, knew, I wanted her to make some money at the yep. end and she wanted me to come with her. So yep. I, I got actually a chance to, cool. to go and do like probably, I think it was 10 or 10 or 12 shows with my mom, mm. uh, which was fantastic Super to see cool. her. Yeah, yeah. Eight hours on the stage doing this stuff and, and taking people through this course and teaching mm. them stuff. And uh, it was it was neat to see from an entrepreneurial aspect yep. and also just, to, I mean, how many people get to work with their mom for a month, Nobody. you know, traveling around in a van. No, like, it doesn't it really, happen. It was so cool, yeah. What's interesting when you say that kind of that the the rights for Canada, like when they were going at that scale, uh-huh. you know, we'll get to where you are now. But it's very it's very interesting to hear the yeah the tie yeah of for where, sure where both businesses yeah. ended up. Um, so you graduate university, like yeah, got got your seventy made out of high school. <laughs> and what do you what do you get your degree in? Uh, I was actually got a uh, bez- uh, business degree from Haskins School of Business. Yep. So, and back then it was actually the second, so it was second to Queens. It's pretty hard to get into. Um, so, you know, I kind of took it a roundabout way there. I was in sports psychology first. So, I, I mean, I think I'm two courses away from having a psychology degree. So. No way. Uh, but I, I like psychology, but I'm like, how do you make money with this, right? Like, everybody saw that a psychology degree was working at totem stock in the shelves. So, um, no offense to anybody that might be listening, but <laughs> at the time, that's what you got, that's, right? That's where you ended up. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so I got into business and uh, worked my way through that, which it was a bit arduous when I had kids. I had kids already when I was in university. I was playing on the hockey team, taking business. There's a lot and, going on. Yeah, there was a lot going on. So, you're on. playing for the Dinos? Yep. So, uh, I went from the AGHL, went to the Dinos. I actually had two scholarships to the NCAA, yep. uh, Wisconsin and uh, Anchorage, mm-hmm. to play for the Seawolves. So I accepted the uh, one to Alaska because I had this big romantic at the time of going off to Alaska. And then I'd, I knew some buddies that I played hockey with, Timmy Coleman and uh, a few other guys that had played there. I talked to them. They said it's a great place to play. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was just about ready to get ready to go. And I said, hey, how do I transfer my uh, classes from UFC? And they're like, oh, how many have you taken? And they said, better not be eight or more. And I said, oh, I've taken nine. And they're like, oh, shoot. You're not eligible. You're ineligible to play in the NCAA for a year. Mm. So they were willing to give me a three-year scholarship, but I had to play for year one. Yep. Um, so I went like, it was $50,000 to go up there to, for one year Crazy. because of the travel schedule, right? Everything has to be shipped in. They have their own planes. So they fly teams in and they fly out like, like mm-hmm. no, who's going to go like North Dakota isn't going to fly up to Anchorage to play a game at there. So yep. they had to pay for everything. So it was extremely expensive to go there. So I said, you know, nah, I'm not going to go there. And then it was, uh, I got offered a scholarship to Wisconsin and then, but it was uh, div three, right? Because I could bypass NCAA that way. Right. And it, again, it, I had to pay for half my school. And then I got a call from George Kingston. I don't know if he was the coach. No yeah. Way. He was a coach at the time. Oh, yeah. Crazy. And, uh, he's like 
Yeah. Legendary kind of. He's a legendary guy. I used to always say, hey, George, how come you look just like Gordon Lightfoot? And that, that was our big joke. I'd tease him relentlessly <laughs> and, send, and sing Gordon Lightfoot songs at full blast at practice. No oh, yeah, just piss him off. But I think he still loves me. So anyway, George said, I said, George, I want to go away and have an experience of going away. Well, he's like, he's like, well, your mom and dad don't even live here and you got the house. So and my brother was going off to play in the Western Hockey League. So. Um, decided, yep, you know, I'm going to just play at UFC and, and mm -hmm. then started playing hockey there. And it was great because well, I, I had a scholastic scholarship. Again, you know, I joke around, but I was not a bad student. So I had a scholastic scholarship and I had a, 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 a athletic scholarship. Yep. So I got a little bit more money than the standard mm -hmm. UFC player at the time. So for me, it, I was putting money in my pocket. My mom and dad were like wanting me to stay there, look after the house. So hunkered down and mm -hmm. I could walk to... UFC from where I grew up, grew up in Briar Hill. So yep. it was, uh, it was a great uh, way to go to school and get through it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, you know, George moved on and I, I played under Willie Desjardins, Mike Johnson, no Drew Remenda, Terry Johnson. Oh, you've had like, yeah. So my joke is every, you know, all our coaches end up playing or going to the NHL, except none of the players, right? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks guys. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So it was fun. So when you're, when you were growing up, you know, you played a high level, a high level of sport. Yeah. Was that, did you, you know, you're hearing these conversations of your family, like, you know, start your own business, <clears throat> do your own thing. You're playing yeah. a like serious high level of sport. Yeah. Where's your head? Are you like, I want to be a pro hockey player or I want to start my own, I want to start my own business. Well, I can remember almost, I wouldn't say to the day, but there's definitely a, a time there where <clears throat> I had a couple other opportunities to go play professional in, uh, Europe and then also uh, to go to an NHL camp and, and maybe go play in the American Hockey League. And again, my decisions were changed a little bit because I had kids at the time. Mm. And I just couldn't justify, like most of the guys that were doing that, taking that risk were kind of like, well, it's me. Yeah. So if it doesn't work out, it's yeah. going to affect one person. For me, it was like, I'm going to affect my wife at the time, mm. my kids. And the money really was what I would call, you know, enough money to be self-sufficient as mm. a as a single guy, you know, going to Europe, drinking beer, chasing yeah. girls, right? Yeah, yeah. But for a married guy with kids, mm -hmm. it, it, the math didn't add up. So for me, it was, and I and I would imagine that a, a lot of athletes have that moment in life, like, is it worth rolling the dice, or is it, or is it time to change direction? And for me, you know, and I don't regret my decision because I, I also understand a lot of people, especially now. I, I, I'm in a rink, and because again, my my nephew plays in the Western Hockey League, and they're talking about their kid making the NHL, and I just. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not there to damage dreams, mm -hmm. but I take one step back and have a chuckle. Yeah. You know, the difference between playing, you know, college hockey or playing in the Western Hockey League and playing the NHL, mm -hmm. it's a quantum leap. Mm -hmm. um, and I knew what my role was, and uh, I'd already had enough concussions. And yeah. uh, you, you've seen me play hockey, mm -hmm. Jeff. A couple of times. I'm not, I'm not really <laughs> one of the guys that sit on the sidelines and, <laughs> first. And, and dish the puck off. But yeah, I had first. Is, yeah, so... Uh, you know, I just decided it was time to change direction and uh, move forward with my business. Um, did you make that decision halfway through university, at the end of university, or where was that the, like, goal? Uh, yeah, it was probably, like, right around in, you know, kind of that, you know, 1988, 89. And, you know, I was yeah. kind of getting to the end of university mm -hmm. and had a few offers and stuff like yeah. that. And, you know, there was lots going on there because you got to remember, I was living on campus at on married student housing behind lot 10 the olympics were on so you got oh i'm like living right across the street from the the uh the uh speed skating domes there off the on yep. the uh, north side 
and going to practice and they used our UFC hockey team as guinea pigs. So we were playing all the Olympic teams, right? Oh, and yeah. people didn't know this. So mm-hmm. in the afternoons and they didn't publicize it or put it on TV because for some of these teams, you know, they're, they're going to be in the Olympics and yeah. here we are beating them 8-1. Whooping them. Whooping them. That was one of the best hockey teams I ever played on is 89 and 1990 at UFC. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1990 we went to nationals and we were ranked number one. And that was probably the most skilled team I'd ever played for. Like even one of the years there, we played the team that won the world juniors and we kicked their butt at no Father Bauer. And it was like, oh, you know, mm-hmm. you need to keep it on mm-hmm. the down low. And uh, yeah, we, it was a good hockey team, good mm-hmm. players there, right? Uh, Crazy. Yeah, so it was neat. So when you... When you finish university, yeah, you know, kind of hockey's you're done. You've made a decision, yeah, and now you spin up this ULS right away. Well, I was still going to school when ULS started, so in '89, you know, I had another year left. So we we kind of started it that April. It was a way to make some money, summertime cash. Yep, summertime cash. We did it. We kind of wound it down. We didn't do snow removal in 1989. One truck, you and a, you and somebody, a couple of mowers. Uh, yeah, there's four of us, so yep. it was kind of like me and my my best friend and my brother and his best friend and we kind of like we had kind of a power washing business that we morphed in there we had a couple mowers and Mm -hmm. we had these uh, lawn spring franchises out of lethbridge which is another story and you know jim and ross had the same thing but they added lawn cutting yeah and then we just that first summer of 89 we kind of just we had these two guys two groups Mm -hmm. doing this and then the following year i graduated and then i kind of got offered a, uh, quite a few jobs downtown to go work for like, you know, different counting firms. Yep. And, and the funny part is I wasn't an account. That was my worst thing. And I don't like, why do you guys want me to come work there? And like, well, you know, you can play left wing. We'll figure that out later. <laughs> it was like to play on the accounting <laughs> hockey team for, you know, Deloitte or whatever. Yeah. That was one of them. It was hilarious. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, no, whatever. And I, you know, it was like, I had done so much stuff and I just felt like putting on a suit was just going to kill me. Yep. I got nothing against dressing up, but, you know, I put a tie around my neck every day. I just, I couldn't do it. And I just felt like I needed to be outside and mm-hmm. with the stress of what I was going through yep. uh, personally with, you know, having kids so young mm-hmm. and going through that. I just, uh, I just needed to be outside. Yeah. It was just weird. Like I just wanted to touch grass and mm-hmm. be dirty. And in 89, it was literally like April, shut it down September. Yeah. And so then, in 89, we sh- I shut it down. De- well, I had to do like, you know, like the fall cleanups. Yep. And so I was kind of. Yep. Get I'd get my classes done, run out, get stuff done. I knew I just had to make it to get this stuff done. And we kind of wrapped everything up mid-October. And yep. then it, it was shut down. And then in 1990, I got out. I'm going to do it full speed. And then uh, my one buddy got a job downtown, uh, Paul Battistella. So now he's Battistella Development. So you know him, right? So he's done his own success. Mm-hmm. So he left. And then uh, Jimmy and Ross were like, Hey, Stevie, like, uh, you know, you keep it running all year and we'll come back in the summer and make 25 grand for working four months. And everybody mm-hmm. else back then, you know, if you got eight fifty an hour, yeah. you're kicking it, right? Mm-hmm. That was about 5,000. So they're making like 20 or 25 grand. So they thought it was great. And, uh, and then they'd go back to school. Well, that happened till 92. And then they both got op- offered pro hockey contracts. And I had turned mine down. Mm to run the business now mm-hmm. these guys are like yeah you know steve why don't you just keep running and we'll come back and help you in april and they run off to germany so ross goes to play for garmish park no and jimmy goes plays for the soldering knife factory <laughs> you had the knives from the henkel knife factory all over his jersey like you look like a you know you look like you're working for a butcher shop but anyway so again i'm cranking it away and then i'll never forget it, it was like in 93 they're both over there and i said you know i phoned him up 
long distance, you know, on the mm-hmm. phone, the old way you had to do it back then. Mm-hmm. I said, guys, when you get back, like you're either in or out, I'm buying you out. And, uh, you know, Ross figured, found out that his wife was having a kid. He's like, I'm coming back. Let's get this going. And, and my brother's like, this is too much. I can't do it. I want to get bought out. So I always say that was my best stock buy of my life. So for sure. And then Jimmy left in 93 and then me and Ross ran it all the way to 2012 and I bought Ross out in 2012 and then went from there. So were you at that first year when you decided you're all in you're, yeah. 12 months a year? So is it, did you add snow removal? And yeah, 1990, have- I, I had no money coming in. So, you know, I kind of set up a new platform on how I wanted to sell it. So I got these kind of like guaranteed contracts and that allowed me to have another job in my, cause I was like, now mm-hmm. I had, you know, two kids mm-hmm. and trying to, they pay for mortgage. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, deal with my employer was if it snows, I don't come to work. Mm-hmm. And if it does, if it doesn't snow, I'll be there and help you out. And the guy's yeah. like, well, you're a great worker. I don't care. Like do what you got to do. So I had these two jobs and I just, I'd get up and look out the window and that was, I'm going to go build like steam units. Mm-hmm. Like I was building like uh, steam units for steam baths and so boiler like systems. Factory stuff. You're like- Yeah. Well, it was kind of a small shop and it was like my uh, uncle had started it and then it was uh, one of my cousins running it. So I just went down there and learned how to mm-hmm. do all this like aluminum welding. Yep. Yeah. Electrocuted myself and burnt myself more than I'd want to admit to it. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and I got, I had, to, I was on the low end of the production uh, line for sure. But, and then it was snowing out. I was just going shovel snow. That was the bounce. And then come summertime, you would just, you're full time. Yeah. Full time. Because there's lawns and yeah. all the maintenance on that side. Yeah. Yeah, and and you did that for how many years? How many years did you have the two jobs in the winter? Oh, that was just the very first winter, and then after that, I was just all in. And your move to go after those kind of guaranteed contracts? How'd you say it? Yeah, it was just like a flat fee contract where you know people would pay whether it snowed or not. Because all I thought is like you know I needed revenue coming in, and Mm -hmm. uh, when you got to feed your family and stuff, you didn't want to take the risk, right? So I de-risk I de-risk the contracts in my favor. Um, it was still fair for the clients. I mean, uh, my pricing was good. So yeah. uh, it was it was a good launch into the snow kind of world of snow and ice management, yeah. as we call it now. And did you did you, were you going after residential or were you kind of doing commercial? I was doing mostly residential and, and, and a little bit of commercial. And mm-hmm. then, you know, as the years evolved, now we all we provide now is commercial yeah. services. We don't we don't interact with the residential uh, mm-hmm. market anymore. So these early years are really interesting to me just, you know, because I understand where you are right now, which is mind altering. But the early years, you know, is it, are you adding one truck a year kind of thing? Is it how many crews do you get? Like, what's the scale look like from, you know, the early nineties when you're kind of doing your own thing, the boys are playing hockey? So when we were, when we first started off, it was like, we had one truck and my grandpa gave me a truck and he said, you can have it. And if you're in business next year, you give me 500 bucks for it. It was a 1967 uh, GMC blue three on the tree. Awesome. So, uh, you know, we wanted all the trucks to be the same color. So the next year we like actually spray painted it. We all our trucks with like spray paint. We bought a Canadian tire. So our theory was we're going to respray paint the trucks every year. And it was just brutal. Like you hand bombed the entire truck, the whole fleet. You like tape off the windows. And Barely. Just- we we kind of got good and we would just hold cardboard. And if we sprayed on the windows, we'd take a razor blade. Cause we're, our theory was from 20 feet away. No one's going to know that as long as we paint them every year. So it was this quick paint job. So different the- color, same colors. All, we eventually went to all white, but I had this blue 67, three on the tree GMC. And so that next year, the first year my grandpa gave me the truck, it was our first truck. Next year I said, yeah, I'm buying it. I'm still in business. So I gave Gramps 500 bucks. And mm-hmm. then oh, two weeks later, I flipped it for 4,700 because it was a collector's truck. No way. So my grandpa, I thought was going to be mm-hmm. like pissed, mm-hmm. right? He phones me up and he goes, 
you bugger. Like, that's a great business move. Congratulations. He took me, right? <laughs> so here's my grandpa thought it was awesome that I, I, I needled him for like what did, four grand. What did he do? What, did he have his own business too? Oh, he was a heavy duty mechanic in okay. Blairmore, Alberta. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just a big bear of a guy. Mm -hmm. Right. And, uh, Awesome. You know, his wrists were the size of my ankles <laughs> and, uh, you know, he, he was, a, he was a character and, uh, you know, everywhere from, you know, he'd done some stints of pro wrestling and everything, oh, just a prototypical yeah. grandpa yeah. that nowadays couldn't exist because yeah, totally. he would be locked up or muzzled. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. Yeah. He was, a, he was a character. I mean, all my friends that have ever met him just shake their head. He's that guy. Yeah. 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 So got a truck. You buy the buy it second year. Yeah. Then where's this thing going? And then it just starts growing. And, and, and at the start, it was like. Like one crew. It's just you and somebody. Well, no, we really started. So it was like at the very first, there was four of us. So we all took a crew, yep. right? And so was, I'd have a crew. Jimmy had a crew. Ross had a crew. So we had three crews. And we just kind of started conscripting like athletes. And it was such a great place to, to take workers from because they were all these hard worker like mm -hmm. you know blue collar mm -hmm. gritty guys and and ladies and we even had the women's olympic team one year worked with us and wally kozak said if you cut lawns all day for stevie you don't have to do cardio so you know we had wow. four or five maybe even like eight awesome women working kozak. for us and we're talking yeah wally kozak <laughs> and uh these and everybody was in great shape and everybody just wanted to work hard and it was now it's like we don't get it, hardly any hockey players. We get the odd one or odd athletes, but now it's like, oh, I can't work because I have to train all summer. Yeah, 12 months later. And, and we're like, we had so a, kind of the epitome at ULS. I think we had 45 NCAA and WHL hockey players playing there. No way. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, it was crazy. They just knew. When, yeah. Once the, once the word got out that yeah. ULS was yeah. hockey like, centric. You know, whatever. Jason Smith for the Oilers, Captain Oilers, like he worked for us. And, uh, you know, uh, Craig, Craig Adams from Pittsburgh no Penguins worked for us. Paul Gapan and AHL, American pro guys from the, from mm -hmm. Europe would come back and work for us. And what was it? What was besides, you know, you being a hockey guy and being, you know, the dino thing starts, what is it? Why did, why do they track you down? Just word gets out. Well, oh, word got out. And I mean, it was all hockey, you know, Jimmy played for the more? Canucks and Wranglers and I played for the Calgary Canucks and Ross played for the Calgary Canucks and mm. Paul played for the Calgary Spurs and, it was just kind of this epicenter to start. And then yep. I was, I played rugby. So I was connected with that. And yep. Paul played foot, high level football and had a scholarship with the Dinos. And so we, we just kind of kept tapping into these, hmm. these groups of athletes. And, uh, and, you know, it was such a good, good breeding ground for top level yeah. kind of not only people, but just like, you know, yeah. I always like in fitness, like, you know, funny now I always say to people like, you know, you, we have, we have to pay a, above minimum wage, obviously, to get people to landscape now. But I always say, too, you get a fitness program for free, right? Yeah, totally. Like, you come and do this for a year, yeah. and your body changes. Like, you, Quickly. you're not going to – there's not a lot of overweight people working at ULS because mm -hmm. the, it's physically demanding work, yeah. right? So these athletes just excelled. And, and that, was the, that, that was how you started scaling? So it was like literally yeah. every year you just like add a – Yeah, we just started buying trucks, and it was like – buy a blue GMC and buy a green Ford and then spray them white with, you know, whatever it was. Did you stencil on ULS? What'd you do? Or was it well, we did. We had on the back on the, on the plywood, we had ULS stenciled on for a while. And then we kind of got more modern and got like actually a logo and a decal. And we yeah. put that over. It was great for hiding like where the doors are completely rusted out. We'd span over the holes. And uh, <laughs> so, yeah. And then, you know, and then obviously the business became much more, uh, you know, entrenched in a little bit more high level. So then we started to, 
analyze, you know, what was the best way to do this. And then we started. How long, how long did it take to get to that point? How long were you kind of. Well, for, you know, it took us 10 years to get to a million dollars in sales. And I always talk to people at businesses and they're like, oh, you know, like I'm going to do 5 million next year. I'm going to do this. Yeah. And it, you know, that this is not how businesses are built really. Yeah. Like usually, you know, you got to take a lot of kicks to the teeth for a lot of years just to kind of build the momentum. Mm -hmm. And then you, then there's the, you know, I always call it the desert where you got to walk through the desert. So it's like where you, every day you get up and you're like, you're slowly like running out of water and dying. And you're like, do I keep walking or do I give up yep. and let the buzzards come? You had those? Well, you know, everybody has that, I think. It and took you. So then, years, you know, in 10 years, we hit the mill. Yeah. And we hit that, you know, uh, you know, we kind of went over and, and we got the revenue over a million and then it just exploded. And I think it would have been in 97 or 98, we bought a company called Terra Green. And that was where we, you know, U.S. was maybe about 26, 27 trucks and the yep. Terra Green was about 28 trucks and we mashed them together. Hmm. And that was the first time that, you know, I ever experienced, you know, am I going to be in business next week? No way. Yeah, because it almost went bankrupt. Leading up to that for getting to a million, yeah, you know, 10 years and you're still having those desert, you still had desert moments. Oh, for sure. You like did. you just, yeah, whatever. There's, there's months in these years. You're just like, what, where is this going? How am I going to keep it together? Yeah. But when you bought the two together, you almost went bankrupt. That yeah. was the, like this, yeah. the closest. We had a, yeah. We had a, we, we originally had tapped into financing through uh business development bank, BDC. So we were getting like student kind of like subsidy loans. Yep. So, and that was good to start off with. And then we took our first big swing at like, you know, leverage financing when we went with BDC mm -hmm. and, you know, it, you know, I, I, I work with all different banks now and I find everybody's got their specialty and I understand how banks work, mm -hmm. but you know, we got our loans called by BDC. So here we are, you know, we had just built a new facility over by Road King yeah. and they called our loans. So here I am the first time I'm like, we're screwed. Like we're going down. So I went into BDC and, you know, I've always been good. I, some people call me Houdini, but we, we sat down and I worked out a deal with BDC of how uh, I could manage my way out of it. And I think that's like a big mistake a lot of business people do is that they, they look at banks as the enemy. Yep. Banks should be your best friend until they're not yep. and then dig in. But, mm -hmm. you know, my, my plan was always to, and, and I still do this to this day, like your banker should be your friend. You should be telling them what's going on. Mm -hmm. You should be like ahead of the curve. So if you see rough waters coming in, just tell them, mm -hmm. you know, come with a plan, come with a strategy, yep. come with the numbers down on paper. And nobody wants to call loans. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of work to shut down a business, mm -hmm. right? So they can keep you solvent and keep things moving along. So that was my first, you know, brush with, you know, I guess you'd call it like the grim reaper of business, mm -hmm. right? He's mm -hmm. like a sickle at the door. Yeah, just waiting for you. <laughs> He's, you're done. <laughs> I got right? you. <laughs> and man, it was a gut, it was a gut churning time. But we, Did, you know. that Sorry, the um, the idea of the acquisition piece, again, it's going to tie into yeah. what's going on now, but to... Did you see that as the only way to grow or was that the quickest way to grow versus, you know, you're at 26, they got 28, put them together, you got a big number. Were you? Yeah. Well, we, you know, back then it was just unbridled passion and foolish, it was just foolishness. Like we just said, Hey, like we're going to get this and, and Tara Green and all of the, it was owned by some firefighters and uh, they wanted to get out of it, but yep. they had, they had the contracts for all of uh, Point McKay. Mm. So now here's this big chunk of work. Yep. And, you know, it was almost like, yeah, let's just do it. It's going to be fun. You know, <laughs> honestly, like but, there wasn't much thought into it. It's just like, this is crazy. Let's buy this on April 15th when yep. everything's going to 
uh, you know, explode. Yep. The season's here. Yeah. And we just built, moved into a new facility, right sized for 30 vehicles, let's say. And now all of a sudden we double in size. And now within six months, the new facility is outdated and we can't fit, fit the trucks on the site. So it was a crazy. So I've had this chat with a couple of other, um, athletes yeah and the decision you know you know you say it's foolishness but do, yeah. do, do you think it's also just being a high performer and understanding that you know when, when you you can do things you once you set your mind to it you can just do things it might not be you know from the outside looking in it might look crazy and little yeah but as a as a performer and it's not that it's not that you have achieved at every step but you know that you can be successful is it that where the foolishness comes from like is it just in you or are you just a crazy <laughs> businessman? Well, I think sometimes I, I don't know what drives most people, but you know, sometimes it's fun to push yourself a little bit, whether that's in sports or in business. So you're always kind of looking for that next rush of, wow, this adds like excitement to my life. Yeah. And, and everybody needs a certain amount of that. And I think it, entrepreneurs need more. So it's kind of like, you know, mm. the heroin needles run out. So now I need a bigger heroin needle. Mm. And whether that's, you know, acquiring more businesses or pushing things to a different level, um, you know, it is, it, I think it assimilates differently in different people. But yeah. for me, it was just kind of like, you know, I'm going to keep growing this. You know, I, you know, I always say to people, if you can't, and this is where visualization comes in. People talk about it in sports all the time, but it's in business too. If you sit there and you can't see yourself at the next step, then you, yeah. you shouldn't go there. Like you should see it before you go there. Like you sit there and if you're, you know, if you're a hundred person company and, and you can't visualize in your mind what a 300 person company mm -hmm. looks like, then you shouldn't be trying to get there. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, there's enough course corrections and craziness along the way without being able to see it. Right. Yeah. So it's like, you know, it's like shooting an archery arrow when you can't see the target. Like it's just, you just blind ass mm -hmm. luck if you ever hit it, but yeah. you can at least see that target in the distance. And I think most people, if they really want to have it and they can really get it and they really want to go for it, it'll happen, right? Hmm. Um, and if I was never one to give up. <laughs> Did you have a number in your head? So when you had 26 trucks, whatever the number was, and, and these guys have 28. Yeah. Did you, did you have a number in your head that you wanted to get to on your side before you bought them? Like, did you have, were, you on your way, were you on the path to 100 <laughs> trucks and this was going to get you 28 now? No, I, I mean, I always quantified it as like, well, I want to be the biggest company in Calgary. Yeah. You know, and then I like, oh, we want to be the biggest company that supplies these type of services in Alberta. But we'd are all once we're the biggest in Calgary, we're the biggest in Alberta. Yeah. We'd already passed that. And oh, we want to be the biggest in Western Canada. Oh, we're already that. Like yeah. as soon as we were the biggest in Calgary, we were the biggest in Western Canada. Yeah. And then you know, that was so, a statement though. That was an internal statement, you would say, as a driving light for you. Yeah, I'd always say like, you know, because we all, we often got ridiculed because our one of our first shops was beside Arn's equipment, and so all the big landscape companies would come in, and we had all the hockey guys on Friday. We had this tradition; you couldn't do it now, but it was Pilsner, and our idea was over the whole summer we wanted to build a wall between Arn's equipment and my uncle's shop out of Pilsner beer cases. Awesome. So. So we'd have like 45 <laughs> hockey guys and ladies. Some of the girls drank more beer than we did. And we would drink beer. And, uh, and then we'd take the cases and we'd duct tape them together. And we started to build this great wall of Pilsner beer between the two facilities. And uh, we always got bugged by, you know, most of the companies that bugged us don't exist anymore in Calgary. Mm -hmm. You know, they were guys that, you know, thought that, you know, they were, yep. they were quite, the, uh, yeah, quite the boys. So, mm -hmm. uh, but we, you know, we weren't, I mean, we kind of laughed that off, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But do you, but you, you made these decisions. Like you're like, I, I want to be the biggest. Yeah. Out loud. 
Or is it, it more, was it more internal? Like, who do you tell these? Well, between, you know, between the, the people that were ownership at the time and with the, the upper management. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, like we hired Ken Ruddick and Kenny. I don't know if you know Kenny. And, I know the name. Yeah, he's a great guy. He grew up in Haysboro and he played for the uh, Buffs. And then he went off and played at uh, St. Lawrence University. And we hired him. When he came back and I said, take one year off, go play pro hockey. Like, I want to play pro hockey. Anyway, and then he came back and, you know, those type of people that have been with us for 25 plus years, you know, at the start, we'd sit around and say, yeah, we're going to do this. Just Mm -hmm. keep going. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I mean, never thought about, you know, grabbing the business and saying, okay, it's big enough. Let's just get better. And that was probably when I think back in the times that almost went bankrupt, those were times when. You know, maybe I wish it was a little bit more controlled and I would have had the ability at the time to say, okay, this is enough now. Let's let's work on systems. But it was just always like pedal to the metal. That's your style. Well, it was at the time. Yeah, mm-hmm. things have changed. But mm-hmm. yeah, it definitely was at the time. And I think as you get older, you start to be a little bit more mindful in what you're doing, whether that's with, you know, relationships, with businesses, with everything, right? Yeah. I feel nice now and I'd rather give a guy a hug than slash yeah, him. Yeah, totally. Right? It's, it's way easier. It's way easier, Yeah. <laughs> Hmm. So, so once you bought that, bought that other company, how, back to the scale question, like yeah. what, where's the next, where's the next, the next blip for you? Yeah. And then we had, a, we cut a deal actually with an oil and gas company and, uh, moved in with them and they were actually a pipe company. So the deal was like, they'll help finance a new facility and we'll move in and share it. And we'll also run their pipe yard. So here we are like doing landscape service and some of our employees are actually cutting pipe and running a pipe yard, which was crazy. And this is, this is, you know, years into the business, right? Yeah. The yeah. ELS has been around for a while now. Yeah. That and would have been about 2000 or so or yeah. And, and you're still doing something kind of like off the beaten path. Yeah. And like we were right across from race city speedway mm-hmm. and we built this big facility with these guys and me and uh, Ross tried, we helped general it and we got this thing built and then we're running a pipe yard it was crazy times, and uh and and so they were upstairs and we were downstairs and uh it was crazy uh company was owned by dan lapon dave Spungus was up there no a bunch of other people and yep. uh they were owned by a couple guys that were uh guards for the miami dolphins so there's all these other stories mm-hmm. definitely not podcast material <laughs> But and we were the landscapers downstairs, and then you know we worked away, and then Continental got bought out uh, by another U.S. company, and then they basically said you got to get out of the building. Hmm. So then we had to relocate, and that would have been in two thousand four, two thousand five. We built our own facility out in Rocky View, okay, and then we had to move again. So because you outgrew it, yeah, yeah, we had outgrew it. Plus the the oil. Uh, the, the pipe company wanted us out too. Gotcha. Yeah. So it was it was a mutual uh, exit on that. Yep. But then and then we moved to this new facility. It was in 2004, 2005. We generaled the building, built it ourselves, their staff. Mm-hmm. We were there. And then we were there for a while. And then in 2017, we moved again. So I think we're on our, by the time, you know, we started out of somebody's house and then we yep. moved to shot. Mm-hmm. I think we're on our sixth facility now that we've been in. Do you, do you like the idea of owning your own facilities? Do you, you know, you, the first couple were partnered and now... Yeah, we, I own one along the way and, you know, now we, we pretty well lease everything. Yeah. So we're just leasing and, you know, you have to decide, I think, depending on the scale of the business, right? And it comes down to, you know, how do you want to build equity? Uh, but you got to remember, we're in the business of, uh, you know, doing landscape services or outdoor property services. Our, most of our CapEx is spent on equipment. Mm. So when you all of a sudden you're carrying, uh, you know, debt on a building. Yep. 
it's a lot of money to tie up in your facility. And right. we would rather put in equipment now. So mm -hmm. that's just the decision. So when did it change from residential focus to bigger projects? Yeah, that, that probably was only probably in about 2016, 2017. Oh, so it's still pretty Yeah, pretty fresh. Yeah. yeah, and we'd done a lot. And, you know, we had some great you know, residential customers. I'm not kidding you. Like, I actually, like, I was in tears, like, writing the letter, like, mm -hmm. oh, you've been with us 23 years. Mm -hmm. And it was, like, a lot of seniors and a lot of uh, long-term clients we had in Elbow Park and Mount Royal. Yeah. And, and these are people that, because we weren't just a landscape company to them. We were, like, the kids they got to watch grow up. You know, so now they're 70 and we were cutting their lawns when they're 50 and they mm -hmm. were just, were the new CEO of it, whatever big oil company it mm -hmm. was. And we were there helping them so they yeah. could go golfing and we're in, the, they'd come home and we'd be cutting their grass, but one guy would be taking shots at their kids, showing them how to do a wrist shot, right? No way. Like yeah. just all those. Yeah. Like well, yeah, we used to cut all these houses at Lake, so we called it the swim day on Friday. So we divided up between Lake Bonavista and Lake Bonaventure and yeah, I forgot, I think it was Midnapore. So every crew got to cut a certain amount of houses that were on the lake and then everybody would swim. And there's all these kids like, you know, were cutting their lawns. They're like, ah, hey, it's the landscape, guys. And they're just all pumped up. And, you know, I, I got a, once got a picture of uh, one of our guys and there's these young kids and they just, they were excited because this guy, had, you know, played junior and you know, I think he was playing for Brandon Wheat Kings and, he was actually an out player. These kids just wanted to meet him. For some mm -hmm. reason, they knew who he was. I don't know if they were from Winnipeg or somewhere out in yeah. Manitoba. And so he shows up, and these kids are like just in awe. And he's like, and they had the, just give me that goal equipment. So he went and that, and these kids are taking slap shots on him. And I turn around like, we're supposed to be what's, cutting grass. What's happening right now? But you know what? You know, these residential That's clients it. got to know us as mm -hmm. just a great group of people. Yeah. Uh, but for us, it was just, it had evolved, and some of these relationships are just so long in the tooth. And it was getting to the point where, because of the work we're doing for municipalities and governments, the amount of safety that we had to do, mm. the amount of training, the insurance costs. Right. When we pulled that down onto a residential level, it just made it uh, unaffordable for us to charge the prices. Mm. So instead of just trying to just keep increasing prices in a market where there's yeah. very few barriers to entry in a residential, I just said, you know, let's just exit with honor and grace and yeah. just be honest and just say, hey, we, we can't charge you what we need to charge. It's not fair. And, so we have a great list of subcontractors now that we just, well, they're not even subcontractors. We just refer them and we've got some great people that we pass on residential clients mm. to. Yeah. So now, now it's the municipalities that those are the, this is where ULS is today. This yeah. is kind of, this is. Yeah. So we've cities. evolved. Yeah. We've evolved where we're mostly looking at municipal contracts, government contracts and large portfolio holders. So, you know, we just signed a big deal with EPCOR. We look after NMAX, ADCO, you know, tons of different municipalities and counties that we do mm -hmm. work for governments and different things like that. We're actually bidding on parliament Hill this week. No way. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, wild, yeah, well, which, which goes back to this, you know, when I kind of preface it, you know, when your parents decide to get the go across Canada, yeah, this is where you are now. Yeah. Which is, <clears throat> it's pretty, it's a, it's a big thing. And the acquisition yeah. piece, obviously I know yeah. a little bit, but you're like, you're, do you still have a vision? Do you still have a vision? Are you, still, are, you still, are you still like, can you see where you want to go? Still? Well, whether is, I had a vision or not, it doesn't really matter anymore. Cause we, so in 2019, we, we sold off a 79% of the company to private equity. Mm. So it changed a lot of things. Um, some for the better, some for the worse. But I think, you know, really 
the whole dynamics of where we're going now is like we it's so much more thought out mm-hmm. um and we do have a vision of where we're going and it's pretty big yeah um you know in 2019 we it was just one company then we acquired citywide towing it was actually already there they kind of merged ULS and citywide towing so also we had this tow truck company which was just strange mm-hmm. and then we started to have acquisitions so you know now you know we have calgary red deer Empton, Saskatoon, Regina, Ottawa. We service Gatineau and Hull. And we have an LOI out on a company in the GTA just outside of Toronto. They have three three locations. And we'll be buying probably three more companies in Toronto within the next 24 months. So we went from basically around a $30 million company. We'll probably be around 100 this year. And rapidly, like over 20 months. Hmm. So uh, it's, it, it's been yeah, a pretty quick. crazy ride. So before, before, you sold, before the private equity play, you know, yeah. when you're making those moves... Is it you just like you and a team? Is it like where are you coming up with the vision to get this thing to go to that scale? Is it just we're just moving forward? Well, I used to have this thing called <clears throat> so I came up with this 50M thinking. So I'd like have post its and I'd stick them on walls or write them on whiteboards in the office or finish off an email with 50 minute, 50M thinking. And everyone's like, what is this? And we used to have these town halls and I, I was just goating everybody. I knew somebody's going to ask me, right? Because we have a QA at the end. Like, Steve, what's this 50 50M thinking? And I said, it's $50 million thinking. We have to build this company like we're a $50 million company. And we were probably about $25 million at the time. Mm-hmm. And so really that's, you know, when you get to that $30 million plus, that's where your company would be called what's called a hypersized company. So at $30 million and, you know, maybe even $25, $50 million, you become a hypersized company. And so that means you have to have every one of the disciplines like HR, accounting, you know, you have to have a great sales team. So all this right. stuff becomes... It moves from small business, like 30 million is your entry into the big leagues, right? Yeah. And people don't realize this, and it's just a staggering uh, number. But, you know, I would always ask people, how many $30 million revenue companies do you think there's in the U.S.? Mm-hmm. People are like, oh, there's millions of them. No, there's not. There's slightly over 11,000 $30 million revenue companies in the U.S. Mm. And there's millions and millions of companies. Most companies are small business. That's why when you hear, you know, governments talk about we have to support small business, small business, small business. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, that zero to a million is 90% of all businesses in North America. And then you get up from, let's say, 1 million to 30 million. Well, that's the other 9.9%. Yeah. And over 30 million, it's just a small, there's a book out there called Scaling Up. And if you read that, it talks about how these, these companies scale up. Hmm. Uh, when you get to that 30 million, so I was always thinking, like, when I thought of 50, I'm thinking, I thought, we need to build the platforms and the processes to run a $50 million company. So like the process, that could be infrastructure on the people side, just like getting people in the right, so everything can scale up and it doesn't get Exactly, so how we can scale. So here we are at 25 or 30 million. So how do we build it so we can just keep going? Because that 30 million is just about adding revenue and then you start to just go, we've got enough systems and everything to handle 30 million, so we just replicate, right? right. So you might have you know a sales team of five, now you need a sales team of 10, then you need a sales team of 20. So yeah. everything just starts to, it's just a, a growth within divisions as opposed to adding on yep. positions, right? You've got everybody. Mm-hmm. Like at 30 million, you have to have a full-time HR person. Yeah, it's or like, you're crazy. And yeah. you know you need full-time safety people. We got mm-hmm. like four of them. And that's all they do every day. Safety, safety, be safe, right? So, you know, when, when I thought of that, you know, we were really good at building processes and systems. And that's why I think the private equity is attracted to us, right? So how can we take you, ULS and start plugging on yeah. more revenue? And so that's kind of what attracted them. And it was really serendipitous. Like it wasn't like I was a thoughtful planning, but you know, we were, 
I was starting to think about how do I start to exit out and how do I transition this business? Because my biggest fear was how do I leave a business mm -hmm. and let all these people stay here? And like, I have like, literally we have 800 employees now. So, mm -hmm. you know, at the time we had 290 and all of a sudden I shut it down to yeah. get my money. I want to sell off assets and shut down a business that's been around for almost 30 years. Yeah. So at the time for me, it was about how do I create opportunity and how do I create a business that, you know, I always told a story at work is that like, you know, my goal, you know, everyone's like, Steve, what's your goal? I said, this is my goal. You can just call me a bullshitter. Here's my goal. One day I want to be sitting in an old folks home, shitting my diaper with my buddy, Frank. <laughs> and Frank's like, Steve, you just shit your diaper. And I'm like, Frank, I did just shit my diaper. You see that guy mowing out there with a the ULS shirt on? I started that company in 1999. And then in 1989, and then Frank looks at me and goes, not only did you shit yourself, you're full of shit. You know that old guy banter? And then I got to try to convince Frank that I actually started it. And no matter what I say, he's just going to think of me totally. as an 82-year-old. Delusional. Delusional, you know, bed shitter. And so, um, but to me, that that became the vision. Like, how do I, how do I move away, offer opportunity, and let this thing keep going? Mm. And there's not a lot of other ways to do it, yeah. right? So... Partnering with private equity allowed me to remove some of my equity out of the business and still keep it sustainable. So mm -hmm. that for me was the decision. Yeah. Um, it's a completely different feeling now for me. Yeah. Um, and a completely different uh, way to do business. Yep. Yeah. Before, when you, <clears throat> right when you were, you know, just, when you were like 10, <laughs> 10, 10 to 30 million. Yeah. Is it still, does it still feel like, are you still like your personality and, whether it's beer boxes and swimming Fridays and all yeah. these little things. Is that, was that still in the DNA at that size of business or does that, do those moments start to dissipate because the company's just getting so big and there's more processes in place? Well, I think that, you know, as a business grows and you start adding layers of regulation and policies and procedures, it does strip away a little bit of fun. Yep. I don't think you can have a 300 person company and it's like people say, Oh, you know, they always talk about culture. And I was a big culture guy. Like, mm -hmm. You know, we, in 2016, I got voted in for one of the top 40 entrepreneurs. So I went to the Ivy School of Business. I got a fellowship there for the Quantum Shift program. So it was just 40 of the top entrepreneurs from Canada, yeah. whether we were or not. Yeah. But we got in there and we sat around for a week at Ivy School of Business. And it was from 6 in the morning till midnight. It was one of the most grueling things I've ever done. And, uh, you know, it, I got kind of chosen because, you know, this this kind of cultural piece, like, oh, Steve's kind of the culture guy. And, you know, I've always been big on company culture and watching how that evolves. Just naturally? Know. Just grow, like, what is that? You know, a lot of people won't go to culture first or top of mind, but what took you there? Well, I think, you know, it's just, you know, I never wanted to, you know, be the captain, but, you know, when I played junior, I was a captain until Don Phelps cut the C off my jersey. And, you know, and, and I think that, you know, the way I like to lead people is just like, I think there's two, there's two ways that I see people lead. Well, there's a number of ways, but most people, when they kind of come to the epitome of, of a leadership role, they say, oh, you know, he's so motivating. Like, wow, all the motivation. I think motivation is kind of like one step down away from the supreme leader. Like motivation to me on the very low end is you take a stick and you hit somebody in the head and that motivates them to do shit, right? Mm -hmm. Like, if you don't do this, I'm going to hit you. That's motivating. Yep. And then at the very top end of the motivation, it would be like the, uh, you know, you don't usually see it on a YouTube thing where you get the, uh, you know, the college football guy that gives the good speech. Yep. 
The rah-rah. Yeah, the rah-rah. That's like that was really good speeches, and you've heard them because mm -hmm. they almost become legendary. Yep. That's a top, top level of motivation. And then the bottom level of most, uh, motivation is hitting yep. and screaming and yep. yelling and pushing and badgering, belittling, you know, mm -hmm. tricking, manipulating, whatever. It's yep. just, it's not really that good leadership. Then get away from all that. The supreme, the, the person that can lead the best, is in, it leads by inspiration. So these, they don't have to say a lot, but people follow them for a different reason. They're inspired by what they do. They're inspired by what they say. They're inspired by the way they handle situations. That person could sit there and talk in a very mundane way. Um, you know, might be somewhat animated, but they, they get their point across. And yeah. people, they, they gravitate to these type of people and they're yeah. inspirational. Like, you know, I don't think Gandhi, like, started to whack people or even screamed that much. Mm -hmm. I mean, he stood there, sat there cross-legged and billions of people decided to follow him, right? Yep. And you look back through history, you know, words are very powerful. And then you put words with a certain amount of action. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, it's like the old baking soda and vinegar when you're in grade 12 and doing the experiments or whatever it was, yep. probably grade seven. And it's hard. So what I always say to people is try to inspire people, you know, don't cut yourself short and just think you have to motivate them. Yep. Like how are you going to really inspire them? Right. So like, and you know, cause you played hockey, yep. like what was more inspirational, you know, or what got you going? The guy on the bench yelling at you, come on, let's go. Or the guy that just, I, I always had the guy on the team and I was kind of like that. Everyone was, my brother used to say, Hey, you talk a lot, but in hockey, it's scary because you don't say a lot. Mm, just do. And I used to always say, don't ever be scared of the guys that are yipping. Be mm -hmm. scared of the guys that aren't yipping. Exactly. Right. And you watch that guy and he just goes through the wall, shift after shift. Yep. And you watch that whole bench yep. just, it yep. just come up. You know, we're going to do that. And the guy that's yelling, they're like, yeah, shut up. Yeah. You know, we're going to do what this guy's doing because he's actually doing it. Right. So that's kind of my difference in this, you know, leadership. Like if you're a leader, try to try to replace that word motivation with inspiration. And I think it does a lot more for you. And I think it's, <clears throat> it's a, you know, when you talk about the, the two sides of the spectrum, you know, the mm. stick and then like the over the top loud person, the inspirational side is, it's one of those ones. I don't think you can teach it. Can you? No, you, it's, it's just in you. Like yep. If you're going to lead with that, you know, with inspiration driving it, it's, yeah. it's just who you are. Yeah. A lot of people, you see them like, oh, I'm going to go take this, yeah. you know, motivational course. Right. And I'm going to try mm -hmm. to try to be a leader. And, you know, I've seen a lot of, I don't know, we're, we've probably had three or 4,000 people work there now. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it's weird. Mm -hmm. Like I'll see a guy that's. And this is just, I'm just coming up with a number, but he's like, you know, you got 300 employees and he's a hundred down to depth chart mm -hmm. and he's out in the yard, mm -hmm. but he's leading yeah. because everybody just follows this person. They, they watch what they do. If that guy, you know, is having a great day, they're all having a great day. They want to be around that person, whether it's a male or a female, they just, there's something about them mm -hmm. and it's so hard to put your finger on, but when you see it, you, yeah, totally. you can see it. It's, it's right like there. a bolt of lightning and... If you can grab a hold of those people and, and get them into your company, mm -hmm. they do. A, they, they just make things happen, right? How how this is really interesting. How how HR growing it? When were you were you hands on for the the bulk of the early years for hiring people and putting them in places? Or well, like I said, that when I was really involved in HR, it was easy because it was like, oh, hockey. I know that guy. I went and watched him play hockey, and yeah. and so you you're picking, and we usually. 
I, I, my theory when we first started ULS is the weirder the better. Like we've had all these crazy people. Well, you mad ride around ride around the truck all day. It's just like stories and crazy guys and ah. work hard and like like and, and even like you know we just hired a bunch of you know younger guys this year and I I met one of their moms the other night at the golf course. I don't golf. I was just there for a celebration of life and mom said, oh, yeah, I got Jake working here. And he's just loved hanging out with your guys, the stories. And he said, mom, it's like a real life sitcom all day. And they're laughing and having fun. And, you know, I always say to people when you're doing that type of work, you know, the people you're riding with mm. is more important than so, the work. Like mm. you're just having fun. Yeah. Like, yeah, working hard and, yeah. and telling stories and having fun and being outside. Like mm -hmm. that's a good summer job, mm -hmm. right? If you're a student, totally. you know. Yeah, so. to, to hire though, like how important was that in your, to scale this thing, you know, like to find, oh, you know, if, if anybody think, you know, if someone says, uh, you know, Steve, you did it all yourself. I just feel embarrassed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great people. Um, and a lot of long-term employees that are just hard mm -hmm. ask people that want to mm -hmm. come to work, do a good job. We've all educated ourselves along the way. Yep. I've seen so much growth in the people that work at our company. It's a, it's fantastic. And now at the size we are, you know, now we're hiring, you know, industry experts from mm -hmm. certain areas. Like, you know, it used to be mostly hire internally and we still really try to do that. We've got a development program. We're starting at UFC in January cool. uh, where we have kind of for mid managers, like a, actually a business kind of management course we're putting them through with case studies on ULS. It's super cool. Awesome. So we've just templated that out with UFC. Um, but you know, now there's, there's positions for like, we have five, uh, CPAs working for us now. Well, you know what I mean? Like, so if you're an accounting person and you're going to school mm -hmm. working for in the summer for us, yeah. you know, usually it's the first two years and then they go yeah. articling somewhere and they mm -hmm. hate it and they say, Steve, I hate this. I'd rather cut grass. Like, well, you got to do it to get your CPA, yeah. you know, eventually. So, but now we have like, you know, we have CFOs, we have like, you know, we have, we have like you know, not that I put a lot of worth in it, we've got two MBAs, mm -hmm. but you know, that's the type of people now that we're hiring too. Yeah. So it's good now because you can, you can see, you can come here when you're 18 years old and cut grass or build a retaining wall mm -hmm. or plow snow. And if you really want my job, mm -hmm. I'll show you the 28,000 steps it takes to get there yeah. and let's start walking together. Right. So mm -hmm this development and this, and this opportunity that's offered, it's there now. So that for me is exciting to Super see. Super cool. That, yeah. It well, is it's, cool. It's interesting. You, you bring up the Frank story. It's kind of that legacy play, right? Yeah. Which all of a sudden, you know, when these, when these youngsters are coming to cut lawns and then they turn into whatever, like the opportunity is probably yeah. smart and hardworking. I'm sure yeah. it's pretty deep yeah. in your company. I know it's going to be time for leave, uh, time to leave when I start hiring kids, grandkids. Well, then you're in trouble. <laughs> yeah. just, just walk. <laughs> it's, it's so funny because I get all these, you know, people that worked there before and now their kids are working there. Mm -hmm. And it's so weird because it's like, you just look like Ray, you know, mm -hmm. Ray Carter, but you're Ray Carter Jr. Like, it's like, I'm living the same life again, right? They show up in our training room or whatever. It's awesome. Do, do you see a lot of the new hires? Well, we have like a border with glass. And so, you, yeah. and there's like a, it's kind of embarrassing, but they have this like, you know, kind of a welcome video yeah. about Steve and yeah. some of his stuff. And, and I'll go by and I usually just kind of look through the window and then just walk in and say something completely ridiculous, mm -hmm. right? Because even though we become pretty corporate, I want people to understand that, you know, if you're not having fun in life, you got to yeah. figure out something else, mm -hmm. right? Like I just look at people and I, 
I did some horrible jobs, like, mm-hmm. you know, up north doing things. And I was always like, as long as I had a, somebody to talk to all day and goof around with, like yep. whether it was singing songs or telling dumb jokes, like 12 hours of work's over. Yep. Like I'm just checking out, I'm yep. planting trees or laying seismic line in Saskatchewan for two months. But the stuff I saw and the stories and the people I met, mm-hmm. like that's what life's about. So, yep. you know, get out of wallowing in the shit and get your head up and understand that, hey, there's some peanuts in there too, right? Yep. Along the way. So. Totally. And do you, you know, when, they, when you onboard these people and they're sitting in the boardroom watching the welcome video, whoever's <laughs> running that meeting, yeah, they're trying to instill some of these, you know, these like DNA pieces, you know, of just how this business is, how it was built yeah. and how it runs. And Yeah, we're having a summit actually here in Calgary. Uh, it was supposed to be next week at the Calgary Public Library in those think tank rooms. And so cool. one on HR and one in sales. And we had like a certain amount of people come from every office across Canada, but yep. because of the COVID restrictions, it got put on us last Monday. Mm. Uh, we're going to have to do it virtually, but you know, the HR is going to be a big challenge for every company. I mean, you hear it on the news every day, right? Like yep. whether it's restaurants or can't whether it's, they can't find anybody. Right. And some of that's a combination of subsidies. And mm-hmm. as they kind of go away, that'll get a bit better. But some of it is the world starting to change now. Right. I often joke around, you know, I want to write a book called the rise of the blue collar, you know, and it kind of, would you ever, well, yeah, would I've, you ever, would yeah. you, could you like, could someone <laughs> ghost write a book for you? Well, I could write it myself, I think. <laughs> but, you know, the rise of the boot collar worker goes like this. Hi, this is Dr. Smith. Uh, I got a couple bricks uh, loose on my chimney. Can you come and fix it? No problem. That's 995 bucks an hour. I'll be over there in a while. Right? Like, what? who's going to do all this work? We've got aging infrastructure. We've got cities falling apart. you got... Everybody wants more green space, but you can't just build green space and not look after it. Mm -hmm. And you have more and more people that think, you know, a good profession is sitting in an office and pounding on on a keypad. So you've got a mass amount of people moving away from this type of work, but the Mm -hmm. demand for this type of work is increasing. How do you look after houses? How do you, you know, um, I did a talk at Springbank High. It was a long time ago, but they were asking about... You know, I, I did. I said I, I gave them the C's, get degrees. They probably shouldn't have done. <laughs> One kid said, "You get a C, you can't even get any university." Steve. But anyway, oh, yeah. is it okay? Time to change. And you know, I kind of said, you know, if, if I had uh, advice to give, is like, you know, get a trade and then go get a two-year business admin degree. You're dangerous because you wait. One day, you know, this this uh, young person who can manage a business mm-hmm. and offer blue-collar services, mm-hmm. like, hey. Try to get your furnace fixed right now. Mm-hmm. Phone up and try to get concrete done. Yeah. You know, try to get new siding on your house right now. Mm-hmm. There's how there's houses still from that hail damage just sitting there that for happened sure. a year and a half, two years ago, and they're gonna get not get fixed for two more years. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the world is is a funny place when people don't understand. Like, you know, the I always I went to Italy once and, you know, just marveled at the the rock work and the masonry work and these guys have been masons their whole life Mm -hmm. it's an art yep and it's a dying art for sure looking after everything right i agree yeah super cool weedy um you know like i said i've known you a long time never really you know had some beers and played hockey against each other but never really sat down yeah this this was a cool one for me to to have um there's only one question i ask the guests yeah and it's um when i say uh calgary where does your head go oh home yeah you know it's uh it's my home here Grew up here, played junior hockey here, played college hockey here, uh, built a great business, uh, super excited about being part of the fact that, you know, Urban Life Solutions head office for all of Canada is Calgary, right? So, 
you know, I used to get bugged by all my guys on my team because 99% were in the oil patch, oh, grass cutter and everything. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. you know, they had office for an 800 going to 2,000 person companies in Calgary. And based on providing outdoor services and an environmentally conscious company, I just think that, you know, when I think of Calgary and just being here and I've traveled all over the world and this is home. Mm -hmm. Super cool, man. Yeah. Uh, I know you're a busy dude, so thanks for making the time. I really yeah, appreciate it. That was awesome. This um, is great. Yeah, I'm sure we'll uh, catch up soon, but thank you again. Yeah, cheers. Yeah, man. <laughs>